How's everybody doing? We are in the middle of March Madness, if nobody can notice, and it is one of my favorite times of year. It is a time in which those of us who love basketball get to not only watch our professional teams, but we like to see all of the crazy things that happen with the college teams. It is an annual adventure, and if you're following it, you got to love St. Peter's. Some of us had to go and figure out where that college even was. In case you don't know, it's in New Jersey. But of course, a lot of times with the March Madness and the big celebration of all of the great basketball teams, what we really look at is some of the great basketball coaches and great teams. Do any of us remember John Wooden, greatest coach in the history of college basketball, won 10 championships in 27 years, and of course, he was a coach for UCLA. More recently, Coach K from Duke is about to retire, and people think how incredible he is, but he's really the second best coach in NCAA history. He has a mere four championships, unless he wins one this year, at which point he's still got a long way to go. We'll never catch Wooden. So I ask us the question as we look at our biblical text tonight, who's your team or what team are you on, and who's your coach? And yes, I am sporting my team colors here for Team Jesus. Team Jesus. Asking the question, are we being coached by what Isaiah tells us is my servant? The passage of scripture we were reading a few moments ago. And yes, I am the first to admit that Jesus is much more than a coach. Jesus, of course, as we understand as Christians, is God incarnate, our Savior, second person of the Trinity. However, I would also suggest this afternoon that if Jesus isn't our coach and we aren't on his team, he may be a savior and a theoretical thing out there, but that's really not what we're supposed to be as Christians. He's really supposed to be guiding and directing our lives. And that's what coaches do. They guide and direct their teams, and they give us an identity. And so for the next little while as we look at our text, I just want to ask us ourselves that question. What does it mean to be on Team Jesus? What would it look like if he truly was coaching us? And what's different about Team Jesus versus all these other teams and these sporting things and things in our world that we get ourselves caught up with? But first, I'd like to open in a prayer. Gracious and loving God, help us as we open our text and as we look at Isaiah 53 and continue to look at the Suffering Servant passage have an understanding of what's different. Why having you guide us and direct us is different than so much that happens in our world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to suggest a few different things about Team Jesus. The first one, and each of these you're going to see come right out of our text, so I hope you're, you'll follow along with our scripture. I will be looking at the English Standard Version. The first thing is weakness. Now, usually when you're thinking of a qualification for a team, that's not something that we think about. In fact, on every team, players who are prone towards injury and weakness are usually avoided. Think about that. So much of our world is, is about not being weak and not being vulnerable. A basketball player who was a great college basketball player that some of us here in New England remember was Purvis Ellison. Anybody remember Purvis Ellison? He played for the Louisville Cardinals. He helped them win a national championship. And then in 1989, he was the number one draft choice. He came into the NBA with this nickname, Never Nervous Purvis. 
That's because he was slow and steady and great under every pressured situation. However, he soon became known as out-of-service Purvis. You see, because of many injuries, he missed 48 of his first 82 games, his first year in the NBA. Then he sat on the bench for 29 games the next year and 30 games the next year, again because of injury. He was released. Think of that. A number one draft choice was this great college player. Now he just was released. He was picked up by the Celtics after being released by Washington, and he rehabbed for the next two years. He also suffered a broken toe that he had from moving furniture, and that came, kept him out of both of 1996 and 1998, and he ended up playing 69 out of his last 246 games in the next three years with the Celtics. They released him. He went to Seattle where he played nine more games, and Purvis Ellison is just sort of a, well, he could have been a great basketball player, but he was too weak. You see, our world values endurance and strength and toughness and toughening it out and good health. But that's not what it's like to be on Team Jesus. That may be okay for the NBA and that may be okay for everybody else out there, but that's not what it means to be a follower of Christ. Listen again to what's predicted about the Messiah. In our weaknesses, he carried us. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. You see, on Team Jesus, weakness actually becomes an asset. And that is one of the most hard things for the non-Christian world to understand. In fact, a lot of times it's a hard thing for Christians to understand, and we get it wrong when we start celebrating the wrong things. We see that weakness leads to disease, and sorrow comes from our inability to be strong, and these cause many to put on a fake front or to suck it up and act like we got it all together as Christians. But with God, it's our weakness that allows us to trust in God. Do you hear that loud and clear? We don't honor strength and being stronger or smarter or better than anyone else. That is not what the Scripture teaches us about what it means to be on Team Jesus, to be a follower of Christ and the follower of the servant, the suffering servant from Isaiah 53 it's about learning that weakness is something that's valued in God's kingdom. And that's one of the mysteries that I'm sure people must have struggled when they heard Jesus talk about that. But if we look at church history, we, do, we discover the same things. There's a young man who went to Yale. His name was David Brainerd. Anybody know the name David Brainerd? He went out as a missionary. But before that, he got kicked out of Yale. Got kicked out of Yale because he had theological differences than the professors. Sounds... Like, things haven't really changed over hundreds of years, have they? We continue to argue over silly things. Then what David Brainerd did, he became a pastor to the Native Americans, and he died before age 30 with tuberculosis. He also wrote a little biography that continues to inspire people. But it's interesting, the weakness of David Brainerd and the faithfulness of him right through the end of his life, serving faithfully with tuberculosis, also led to the founding of two other pretty important universities. One of them was Princeton. Because of people seeing David Brainerd being kicked out of Yale, a group of people followed, followed, founded Princeton as a place for those who had been kicked out of Yale to go to school. And Dartmouth College, another Ivy League school, was also inspired by David Brainerd because of the fact that it became a school for Native Americans. So think about that. 
One of the most important people in American church history was a weak young guy who gets kicked out of college, becomes a pastor working with Native Americans in New Jersey, and dies of tuberculosis before the age of 30. Or perhaps closer to our Methodist tradition would be Fanny Crosby, who as a young girl was suffering an eye ailment, and a doctor got called in and put hot pulses on her eyes, and she went blind. The guy, the doctor, was run out of town, but Fanny Crosby's response was to never have any anger or bitterness or anything about it as a young girl. She just grew up as a young woman of faith, and she went on to say, you know, the weakness and the struggle of my not being able to see has allowed me to imagine and do all sorts of things, including one of which she became a poet and eventually a hymn writer. She wrote some of her favorite hymns like Safe in the Arms of Jesus, Rescue the Perishing, Blessed blessed Assurance, and Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. You see, Team Jesus doesn't look for those who are the best or the strongest or the smartest or the most healthy. Team Jesus looks for those who are able to admit weaknesses and realize we don't have to be stronger or smarter and better than anyone else. And that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's what we honor. We honor weakness around here. It doesn't mean that there aren't people who are strong and there aren't people who are able to do things, but we honor. That's a huge part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. It was our weakness, Isaiah said, that the servant will carry A second thing that's important if we're going to understand what's unique about Team Jesus versus all the other teams and all the ones that we're all going to be celebrating during March Madness and all of the other sporting events that we get excited about is the second value is failure. Now, I'm sure we all got up this afternoon and got up this morning and said, well, I'm going to go to church this afternoon and I can't wait till Pastor Stan tells me that failure is actually a good thing. But in the kingdom of God, failure is a good thing. Hear that? Because far too many people can't admit failure. Paul says this to Timothy in one of his letters. He said, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Now, when the apostle Paul says everyone should accept it, we should pay attention to what he says. Christ Jesus came to this world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me, and so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience, even with the worst of sinners. See what Paul's doing? He's admitting failure. He's saying, look at me, I did wrong, I've done wrong. I don't get it all right. I love the word sin. I know people who've been around for a while know that I love the word sin, because sin is an archery term that, that is the Greek word harmatia, it means you miss the bullseye. And a lot of times I'll work with people in some of our Bible studies and they'll say, oh, I don't want to be called a sinner. And I said, oh, you're perfect all the time. Well, no, I don't get everything perfect. Well, that's what the concept of sin is, is our ability to acknowledge we are not perfect people. We don't get it right. We don't take the arrow and shoot at the target and get it in the bullseye every time. Therefore, we miss the mark. Therefore, we're sinners. In fact, that's who we are as a church. We are a church filled with imperfect people. Look around. None of us are perfect. Look at ourselves in the mirror. We aren't. That is a huge part of what we understand as Christians, that God doesn't come into this world to find all the people who get it all right, to recruit the greatest and the best team, but rather those who are able to acknowledge our weakness and those of us, all of us, able to admit our failures But most people, you know, try to hide their failures. Are you aware of that? We all do it. 
We don't like people to see our failures. We want to be the strongest, the best, and the brightest. There was a study I heard about, which is interesting because I'm going to come back to something that I've observed. There was a study that was done with, with partners. So it was a game that was played, and you had two people here and two people there. And when the first person did the game, they were then able to explain to the other person what they did to give them help in solving the game. And they had a lot of different things that they put together with this. And, and so this was a way of saying, how do people respond? But the game was rigged. If you didn't get it right, you told your partner you didn't get it right and what you did wrong, they would have a better chance of getting it than if you did get it right, the information you could give to them wouldn't give them as good a chance to beat the other person. But here's what they discovered. People who got it right told their partner every time, this is how I did it. People who got it wrong, even though they were going to have a better advantage to win against the other people, only 50% of the time would admit to the other person that they did it wrong. Don't tell me we don't like to hide our failures. We don't like to admit when we do wrong. But on Team Jesus, failure is a thing to be honored and something to be celebrated. We're a bunch of failures. You could say, hey, what's Faith Community Church? I go to a church with a whole bunch of failures, a bunch of us who just don't get it right. And it's like, well, what kind of church is that? It's a great church because we trust in God and we acknowledge that when we do wrong, that's how we're able to be forgiven. Now, why do I say that? Because there's a new game going around. Many of us have noticed it. Some of us play it. It's called Wordle. You notice what people do? I first started picking it up on Facebook when people would show how quickly they could solve a problem. You got a little puzzle every single day and you solve it and then you can tell how many chances it takes to solve it. People love to say, I solved it in two, I solved it in three. But how many people like to celebrate when they didn't get it right? Now, there was one recently, I will admit that I put out a thing and said, hey, I just couldn't get it today. And other people started posting and saying, oh yeah, they didn't get it right either. But other than that, people never say, I missed my puzzle today. In fact, one of the reasons I think that the puzzle is so popular is because you get to brag once you get it done. You get to say, look what a smart person I am. Look how well I did. But you know, on Team Jesus, we don't honor the people who win Wordle. We honor the people who don't get it right. Because when we can acknowledge our failures, we can allow God to be in charge. Hear the difference? When I have to be the best and the brightest, all I get is the best of me. And that's not what the Christian faith is about. That's not what it's like on Team Jesus. Weakness allows us to trust. And failure allows us to put God in control. Weakness means I'm not the strongest. Therefore, I need to trust Jesus to get me through. Failure means I have failed and I need to be forgiven. And therefore, I can completely turn it over to God. And that's what Team Jesus, that's what our faith is about. I often like to ask people what their favorite solo or thing they've ever heard in church, their favorite piece of music. I ask that question because my favorite experience with a church solo came Easter 1978 at a little church called Emmanuel Baptist Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I was away from home for the first time, and it was Easter, and I went to a worship service. And a woman got up, it was a packed congregation, and she got up, and she was going to sing the song, We Shall Behold Him. And the accompaniment started perfect, and she made it about 
one line into it, and she started to cry. And she said, I'm sorry, we need to do it again. And they started the song the second time, and she started the, the song, We Shall Behold Him. And a second time, she broke down. She tried it a third time, and she said, I can't do it. This song is too meaningful to me. And she just sat down. And I was blown away. Wow, that was just amazing. But here's the thing. A few years later, she came and she taught music at the college that I was at. And I got to know her. And I remember being in the cafeteria. In fact, I was talking to Regina about the other day, and Regina said, yeah, Marlene. And so we looked up to make sure I got her name right. Her name was Marlene, and she was an assistant um, music professor at Fort Wayne Bible College. And I was in the cafeteria with her one day, and I said, I know you, because I, I had talked to her before, and all of a sudden it struck me. I go, I know you. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, now, I'm a Methodist, but I attended... Um, the little Baptist church, Emmanuel, she goes, yep, that's my church. And I said, I remember the Easter. You got up and you sang, we shall behold him. She goes, that was the most embarrassing moment of my life. I said, really? She said, it was awful. She said, I just couldn't get through it. I said, that was the most special song I've ever heard. It was great. See, we don't honor being better or more musical or stronger or brighter than everyone else. That's not what it means to be a Christian. It means to be able to be on Team Jesus and acknowledge the fact that we can fail. And failure is okay. Because sometimes failure means that we've done our best and God lifts us and carries us. And sometimes we fail because we really do the wrong thing and we need God's grace. And that's why it's different to be on Team Jesus and all these other teams that in the end we're going to honor somebody who wins a championship. And if Coach K gets number five, we'll go, wow, he's halfway there to John Wooden and everybody will be excited. But that's not what we honor as Christians, and that's not who our Messiah is. So we begin by understanding that we need to understand the importance of weakness, and we need to be failures to be on Christ's team. There's one more one. I've had different words I came up with, but I'm going to use this word, quitting. What it means to be a Christian, we're quitters. Isaiah put it this way. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've left God's path to follow our own ways. Yet the Lord laid on him the sin of us all. Now, there's a wandering there, but there's also a giving up there. There's an acknowledgement that we don't get it right. You see, if we go to church and we, be, we follow Christ and we go, I've been a faithful Christian my whole life, we're fooling ourselves because I have not met that person yet. That is not who we are as followers of Christ. It's God's grace that continues to to keep us. It's God's love and goodness that keeps us going forward. And there are times when we have given up and we have wandered away and we have done the wrong thing. Consider Jesus' teachings. Remember the story of the shepherd and the hundred sheep and one of the sheep wanders off? What does he do? Say, well, I got 99, but you know, that sucker sheep over there, I'm kind of disgusted with him. Can you believe he wandered off again? No. Jesus says the shepherd goes after him. Even when the sheep quits the fold, and does its own thing. And then Jesus says, okay, if you don't get the story yet, let me try it this way. There's a woman who had 10 coins, and she loses one of her coins. What does she do? Say, I'm thankful that I have nine coins? No, she goes and looks for the one coin and searches after it. And then when she finally finds it, she celebrates. And then Jesus says, okay, you still don't understand what it means to be a follower and what quitters we are and how we're not going to get it perfect and we're not going to be 100% and how there is something different between being on Team Jesus versus all the other things. He says, let me tell you about the guy who had a son 
And the son kept saying, Dad, I want my inheritance. And finally, the dad gives him his inheritance, and he just leaves everything behind, leaves the brother in charge, leaves the father in charge, doesn't care anything about them, takes all of his inheritance, and we know what happens. He squanders it all. He loses it all. He's a young Jewish man, and now he's in the most humiliating of all situations. He's feeding the pigs and thinking, well, if I could at least eat their food, I'd be better off than starving to death. And he comes back, and what does the father do? He puts on the robe, gives him the signet ring, and throws a big, bang, big banquet. Because that's what it's like on Team Jesus. We don't expect everybody to get it perfect. We don't expect everybody to be here all the time. Because if we do, then that's on us. Then that's works. And that's a works righteousness that we reject. We don't see that we work our way to God and somehow we're better than someone else and we've arrived, but rather we are constantly allowing God's grace to transform and change us. And so even Isaiah was writing those troubling words that people couldn't figure it out. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've left God's path and followed our, our own way. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. It's funny not just that we give up, but we give up on others. Not only do we quit, if we're honest, we've quit our, our faith and the things we're going to do and we've failed and gone off, but sometimes then we don't expect the best out of others or realize that God will transform them and turn them around and bring them back. And when that happens in this world, it really can be a very painful thing. Now, do any of you, if we have any Celtics fans, you may remember this name. Yes, we did stay with the March Madness theme today. Anybody remember Chauncey Billups? Chauncey Billups went to the University of Colorado. He led the University of Colorado to their first March Madness, so this big tournament, this NCAA tournament, their first appearance in 28 years. And in fact, he led them to beat Indiana, which is, again, one of those great college basketball teams. He was drafted by the Celtics, played 51 games until they gave up on him, and he went to Toronto until they gave up on him, and then he went to Denver, and then they gave up on him, and he went to Minnesota, and he is finally traded to Detroit, and so now he became Chauncey Billups five teams in five years, and everybody said, well, everybody's given up on him. He's obviously not going to be much of a player until the year 2004 came along and Billups finally showed everybody else. He made the finals against the Lakers, Detroit did. Billups scored 21 points, averaged 5.2 assists, 3.2 rebounds, as well as shooting 50% field goals and 47% from three-pointers, had a 92.9 free throw percentage, and helped Detroit beat the Los Angeles Lakers, which was a huge upset. They beat them four games to one. Here's the thing. Everybody gave up on Chauncey Billups. That's what we do in the basketball world. That's what we do in the NBA world. That's what we do in the baseball world and every other team that's out there. People just give up on each other. We quit ourselves and we quit on others. But that's not what it's like in God's kingdom. How do we treat ourselves and how do we treat others who are struggling? Do we wander away and say there's no path back? There's always a path back because God's grace is deeper and farther than anything we can imagine. Or how about others? Do we give up on them? Do we say, well, they failed. They failed me. They've done something wrong. 
Or do we understand the grace that is always supposed to be there because it comes from God? Yes, quitting is part of what it means to be a Christian. And I don't mean quitting sinning, I mean quitting. There's literally times when we make the wrong decisions and we quit on the things that we have vowed ourselves to say, I'm not going to do that wrong again, and we find ourselves back doing it. But fortunately, we're in Team Jesus where grace and love is shared and showered upon us. Do you hear the difference? That's why it's okay. That's why we honor it. As a congregation, we adopted core values. And I love our core values. Love in Christ, which means we're here to get to know Jesus better. Growing relationships, which means we get to know people who are different than ourselves. And reshaping lives, which means we understand that God reshapes our lives when we're weak and we're failing and when we quit. Because that's what it means to be part of God's family. It's different than all the other places we go in the world because everyone else is going to honor the strength and the power and the being smarter and doing better than someone else. But that's not how Isaiah predicted God's servant would be, and that's not the Savior that we serve. And that's why this Lent we're taking a chance just to read through this text and just think about these ideas. Listen to how different it is to be on Team Jesus as I read our passage one last time. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him smitten and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we're healed. But all we have been like sheep and have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our own way. But the Lord laid on him the sin and the iniquity of us all. I don't know about you, but I'll take Team Jesus. Because I like a place and a, and a Savior. Who no matter what we've done, no matter what somebody else has done, no matter where we've messed up, no matter where we don't match up to our standards or somebody else's standards, we're just treated with grace and love and learn to be transformed by that so we have grace and love and forgiveness towards others. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for Isaiah's wonderful prophecy. The suffering servant that just didn't fit into this idea that somehow if I follow God, that blessings will be showered upon me, but rather this odd scripture that until we see it through the eyes of Christ sometimes doesn't even make sense to us. But then we understand what we're part of and we are so thankful. Help us have those things that we celebrate, those things that we like, those teams that we get excited to watch, but help us remember that when we come up with some kind of standard that people have to measure up, that nobody measures up, and that includes ourselves, but that's okay because you don't ask us to measure up. You ask us to accept your love, accept your grace, accept your forgiveness, and through it, learn to make friends with others who together we can realize that you offer us something that is not offered elsewhere in this world and help us to bring it into our lives and live it every day and allow Jesus to be our coach. In Christ's name we pray.